Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm the director of the European Institute here at the LSE. Let me begin by welcoming you all to tonight's uh, lecture. This lecture is the first in a new series. The European Institute at the school is collaborating with FT Business to host this new series. FT Business is the specialist publishing arm of the Financial Times Group, and we are delighted to have them as our partners for this new series uh, of lectures this academic year. For the series, we focused on the theme of the future of Europe so that we can explore the major issues appearing on the agenda of the European Union. It is, of course, a period of much uncertainty for the European Union. Paradoxically, much of the original motivation behind the creation of the European Union has been a search for greater certainty in the world, in a world of change, in a world of threat. Europe has been created by a desire for greater certainty in terms of peace and democracy, the certainty of market access, the certainty of agricultural supply, the certainty of monetary stability, and the rest. But of course, these certainties are in question today. Will the European Union have a constitution? Can the European Union manage a membership of 25, soon 27, very diverse countries? Should the European Union continue to enlarge? Should we accept Turkey? Where does Europe stop? Can the European Union, more fundamentally, perhaps manage a process of economic and social change? And can Europe reduce uncertainty in the era of globalization? Even the most optimistic would recognize that the European Union faces a challenging agenda. There are fundamental issues here of identity, legitimacy, purpose, and capability. The agenda is interlocking. It combines foreign policy, economics, welfare, as well as building the institutions of the European Union. We explored some of these themes in our public lectures last year. President Giscard d'Estaing talked of the European Constitution, and the EU Commissioner Olli Rehn spoke about enlargement, for example. And our series of public lectures will continue throughout this coming year. This being the London School of Economics, of course, we have something of a star-studded cast of speakers in our programme. Indeed, just this academic term, we will host President Napolitano of Italy, Mr. Ali Babacan, the chief EU negotiator of Turkey, Prime Minister Karman Lis of Greece, the Prime Minister of Estonia, Sir Peter Sutherland, former Director General of the World Trade Organization, and Professor Timothy Garton-Ash of Oxford University. But to open our series tonight, I'm delighted to welcome Matti Van Hannen, the Prime Minister of Finland. It is especially important that we start the series, if I may say, with a finish. <laughs> what do you expect, cabaret? It is important that we finish, sorry, that we start with a finish. As Finland holds the presidency of the European Union, 
Matti Vanhanen is the leader of the Centre Party in Finland and he's been Prime Minister since June 2003. The Finnish presidency began in July and it ends this December. Like many EU presidencies, it has been forced to react to unforeseen events. The crisis in Lebanon again challenged the ability of the European Union to speak with one voice on the international stage. Prime Minister Van Hannen recently told the Finnish Parliament that the EU had both the obligation and the opportunity to exert, quote, a decisive influence in the Middle East peace process. Like many, the Prime Minister has argued that the EU punches below its weight in international affairs. The Union, he argues, needs to match its foreign policy objectives with its resources. As President of the European Council, Prime Minister Van Hannen will host two European summits. The first, indeed, will be this month, an informal meeting of the European Council, and he has placed three major items on the agenda. Innovation and the need for Europe to convert innovation into economic growth. Energy, and in particular Europe's relations with Norway, Russia and Algeria. And illegal immigration, especially in southern Europe. Later in December, the Prime Minister will host a more formal European Council meeting in Brussels. Top of that agenda are likely to be issues of enlargement, especially Turkey and the rest of the Balkans. Europe, he said, is more than a matter of values, sorry, more than a matter of geography. It is a matter of values, values more than geography. All of these aspects give us plenty to discuss uh, this evening. But tonight's lecture has a particular focus. It is the European Union and globalization. Nowhere, perhaps, is the theme of the uncertainty facing Europe more important than in relation to globalization. As usual, there'll be plenty of time to ask questions after the lecture. I've been asked to announce that the lecture will indeed be recorded and made available online for your consumption as a podcast on the LSE website. And also, during the uh, lecture, during the questions and answers, um, I'm asked to repeat any questions from the audience for the benefit of those with hearing difficulties. So there will be plenty of time for the discussion afterwards. But first, to open our new series of public lectures, please give a very warm LSE welcome to the current President of the European Council, the Prime Minister of Finland, Matti van Hannen. Professor Featherstone, ladies and gentlemen, dear students, thank you so much for the invitation to hear. And before this lecture, I actually learned outside what is the difference between the 
characters of British and Finnish people. And uh, I, I heard that um, you had in this um, um, institute um, st students' occupation in somewhere in 1960s. Uh, we are not so revolutionary or radical because our students in 1960s, they made also occupation, but they occupied their own house. <laughs> so there is a small, small uh, difference in the radicalism of students. <laughs> I'm a, uh, the Rome, Rome Treaty is already 50 years old. I'm one year older, and normally it happens so that what older people is, they had to use glasses, but in my case, I had to take my glasses away. Now, nowadays, I see the text better without glasses. But ladies and gentlemen, it is a great honor to be here at the London School of Economics. It is actually quite a humbling experience to speak to you about globalization. This, is the, this institution has been at the cutting edge of the intellectual debate on all the important subjects of our modern age. I feel that I should be the one sitting in the audience listening to what you have to say. Ideas are global. They travel fast and influence the very foundation of our societies. But in this age, the era of globalization, we must also recognize the very fundamental role of economics in shaping our world. I'm not I'm no Marxist, but I think that Karl Marx had a point when he said that economy and economics rule. They are the drives our world to forward. My theme for this lecture is the European Union and the challenge of globalization. The founding fathers of the Union had the war fresh in their minds. However, from the very earliest days, economic motives have played a central role in moving European integration forward. I think that it is fair to say that European integration is Europe's early answer to globalization, even though the Union predates our recent preoccupation with globalization. Earlier globalization manifest, manifested itself in the shape of multinational corporations. As I remember, this was the debate in the 1970s. How are the nation states to survive as effective actors in the age of the global corporation? European integration as a political project made sense. If companies operate across borders, so should governments. Governments should pool their resources and sovereignty cross-border, if only to remain effective in the face of international com companies. Globalization, as we know it today, as a truly worldwide phenomenon, was the result of the unprecedented opening of emerging economies to trade, investment and technology a clear shift in the intellectual landscape with the end of the Cold War. Foreign investment on a global scale has made competition and production truly global. 
for instance in Finland, we are seeing jobs and production move at an ever faster pace to low-cost countries and markets, especially China. And we cannot be complacent and console ourselves with the thought that only low-value, added-value jobs are at risk and that we, as affluent economies, will keep all the goodies. China and India are producing engineers and scientists by the million. Emerging economies are even more attractive as locations for research and development. Many activities which have been considered the preserve of the developed economies may move away to the distant locations. Globalization places huge demands on our competitiveness. There is no hiding place, no shelter from competition. This needs to be recognized by all. The days when we could contemplate visions of, of a fort fortress Europe, a haven protected from global winds, is long past. Isolation and economic nationalism do not work in the world economy today. Not if we want to remain at its prosperous forefront. But this needs to be said as well. Globalization is a challenge for us, but it is not a threat, nor an immoral or evil development. Globalization can be a force of good, and it has brought benefits to many by lifting people out of poverty. We are witnessing this in China, India, and many other places. As I have said on numerous occasions, Globalization has been the most effective de development aid project in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the European Union to, to do about globalization? As I said, we cannot afford to ignore it, nor should we think about building higher walls against the world outside. Such responses may be un understandable in a way but they simply would not work and would actually condemn the EU to a vicious circle of lower growth and diminishing prosperity. The first thing we can do is to cultivate our competitiveness, devote our attention to remaining competitive and improving our standing. And here we should keep in mind that the real underlying competitive competitive strength of the EU is the internal market. This market, by many counts the largest in the world, provides European companies with a strong home market and tough competition, essential sparring partners that help keep them fit for the global market. Tough competition at home serves as a springboard for global success. Therefore, one essential measure for European competitiveness is to take the single market further, improve it and enlarge it. For instance, a real internal market in services is crucial for Europe. Services are a vibrant sector with strong growth ahead. European companies cannot compete on the global stage if they lack the necessary foundations which only a European internal market in services can provide. 
Britain is a very positive example of the importance that international services, like financial services or creative industries, can have for Europe. And many services have the added advantage that they need to be produced locally, which means jobs. Care, for instance, cannot be outsourced for, to foreign locations. The Lisbon strategy is designed to give focus on our efforts to become more competitive. We need to make tangible progress. To this end, the Finnish presidency will organize an informal European Council in Lahti, along the same lines as the successful Hampton Court meeting last autumn. I feel that this kind of informal discussion among leaders is a very useful way of taking things forward. I'm glad that Tony Blair took this initiative during the UK presidency, a good idea which I am now copying. I hope Tony won't mind. At Lahti, we will focus on innovation policy, because our capacity to innovate is really at the very core of our competitiveness. Companies innovate, but public policies at EU and national level set the scene for companies to realize their innovation potential. As I said before, we cannot compete with cheaper labor, nor can we take shelter from ever toughening competition. Instead, we need to move further up the value-added chain in the world economy, find new products and new ways of making them. For this, we really, we really depend on having an effective innovation policy that not only encourages innovations, but also turns them into cutting-edge products. Companies that are world leaders in their field and, above all, good jobs for our workers. Europe's real challenge is to create a policy mix for innovation that helps translate investment in knowledge into successful products and services. I know that innovation is uh, hardly a crowd pleaser. No one will take to the barricades to fight for more ambitious innovation policy, nor will they demonstrate in the street for more R&D funding. People are not passionate about innovation, which is why this is a perfect theme for the Finnish EU presidency. <laughs> As part of the Lisbon strategy, the target for research and development expenditure has been set at 3% of GDP. This reflects an important commitment to improving innovation financing. I believe that if we were to reach this target, it would mean an additional R&D investment of some 100 billion euros annually. So 100 billion, 100 billion euros in Europe annually, more than what European industry and universities and states are using nowadays to R&D. But that alone is not enough. It is like fixing our cage on the thermometer instead of the weather. 
Innovation as an activity is above all demand driven. We need to focus on, on creating market conditions conducive, conducive to the innovation. If we get the market conditions right, if we produce conditions that are conducive to innovation and investments, that will de deliver a lasting improvement in our ability to compete. Governments should provide good regulation and ensure healthy competition. We should also keep in mind that innovation is not just about product improvement. It includes services, marketing, logistics, and new inventions. It is not limited to things. It is also about the way we make, use, and sell them. We look forward to the Commission's proposal for the for a European Institute of Technology to boost the European research effort. Standards are one good example. Setting strong common European standards in mo mobile te telephony was an essential element in turning Europe into the world leader it now is in this field. Imagine what the situation would have been if we had adopted national standards and not European ones. We would all be using a Motorola. <laughs> European mobile telephony standards were so successful that they were adopted by many regions of the world. I think that we should follow this path and make sure that we have the capacity to set strong and attractive standards. standards that could become worldwide. Unfortunately, our innovation policy is still too fragmented and inefficient. Let me mention just one blatant example. After years of debate within the Council, we still have not been able to agree on a Europe-wide patent system. We are harming ourselves by our inability to agree on essential European prerequisites for innovation like this. The pharmaceutical sector serves as a warning. In 1992, six out of ten of the top-selling pharmaceutical products in the world were produced by European companies. In 2002, so only ten years later, this had dropped to two out of ten. We must do more to achieve a single market in pharmaceuticals. Further efforts to simplify legislation and regulation at EU level are badly needed. Of course, innovation policies alone, alone are not enough. We need to make our markets function better, which requires further reform of labor and product markets and of the public sector. Reform is never easy, at least not if you want to win the next elections. But it is wrong to, wrong to support that economic reform is by definition an enemy of the so-called European social model, or models to be more accurate. There is no conflict between economic efficiency and social cohesion, as Nordic economies have shown. Neither is competitiveness an enemy of the environment. 
I believe that ambitious environmental policies can actually strengthen our competitiveness. Green technologies are the way of the future. So is energy efficiency. Having a market-based emissions trading scheme in Europe is an asset. It is a practical way of dealing with climate change on a global scale. These are examples of strategic priorities that we must get right if we are serious about competitiveness. At the beginning, at the beginning of the Finnish EU presidency, I was asked to sum up our three most important priorities, and my answer was innovation, innovation, and innovation. Ladies and gentlemen, more effective decision-making and more cohesion in external action are also essential ways of boosting the EU's ability to respond to globalization. The Constitutional Treaty would bring welcome improvements to our decision-making and also make the EU more cohesive in terms of external representation and action. I will not go into the detail of the EU's institutional architecture, but let me say one thing. The EU needs to be effective on the global stage, because divided we fall. Not even big European countries are big enough to make a difference in a globalizing world. We have very little influence on global issues if we all choose to act on our own. This is self-evident in a place like Helsinki, but it is nevertheless also true in London, Paris, Berlin, Rome and Madrid. We need to be able to act decisively, quickly and coherently. The Constitutional Treaty would provide many improvements, but we are not condemned to inaction without it. In fact, the EU already has one external sector which works effectively and presents the EU as a single entity to the outside world. I'm talking about trade policy, where the EU as such is a major global actor among other leading global powers. I think that we should take a lesson from our own trade policy and see whether other external policies might ideally function along the same lines, with member states being closely consult consulted and making the decisions, but with the EU represented by a single actor empowered, empowered to negotiate on our collective behalf. I believe that this could be a very useful model for our external relations in general. Energy policy is a good example of a field where we could benefit from more external unity. The external dimension of energy policy will be discussed at LAHTI. The EU has an internal market in energy and we need to extend the principles behind it to neighboring producers for the market to function. This is mainly about seeking a level of level playing field between consumers and producers, because external producers cannot ex expect an open EU market without reciprocity. We are happy to buy Russian energy, and Russia needs our markets. But at the same time, we need a commitment to more transparent rules in Russia, to guarantee fair treatment 
for foreign companies and make energy provision more predictable. EU leaders will discuss these issues with President Putin at Lahti. And this brings me back to my main, main point. Effective external relations. Russia, Russia is a strategic partner for the EU. Now, do you think that the EU will have more influence with Russia if we act together or as separate member states, each with our own agenda? I think that the answer is obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, the enlargement of the European Union is a part of our team here this evening. The EU and the challenge of globalization. Enlargement is benef benefiting the EU, both old and new member states. The accession of 10 new countries has made the EU more competitive, more vibrant. It has added to the Union's weight in the world. And I think that a recent Commission study demonstrated that the economic impact of the enlargement has been very positive. The enlargement process continues, and I am happy that Bulgaria and Romania will be joining our European family from next year. I believe that Turkey deserves to be considered on its own merits, in the same way as any other candidate. The road to membership is never easy, and Turkey is a unique country in Europe in terms of population alone. But a Turkey that fulfills the conditions of EU membership would benefit both the Union and Turkey. The Finnish presidency is actively working to ensure that Turkey proceeds with the fulfillment of her obligation under the additional protocol to the Ankara Agreement. A positive outcome would help us to avert difficulties with Turkey's EU accession negotiations. We also continue to seek a solution that would enable direct trade between the Union and the northern part of Cyprus. We continue to talk with the Republic of Cyprus, the Turkish Cypriot community, Turkey and other relevant actors. The following weeks will be important for these efforts as the European Commission has announced it will, it will issue its progress report on Turkey on 8 November. Ladies and gentlemen, enlargement benefits the European economy, but at the same time enlargement is also the best security policy we have ever had. Enlargement has taken European stability to new frontiers and with enlargement an ongoing process. This stability radiates beyond the Union's existing borders. It is living testimony to the success of European integration that so many are seeking to join the European Union. The Western Balkans is an important example. As a European, I must say, I am ashamed that we have allowed all the atrocities in the former Yugoslavia to take place on our own continent in our recent history. As if the last world war had taught us nothing, the horrors of Skrebnica are just little over ten years old. I believe that the countries in the Western Balkans are 
heading for the European future. And even a distant prospect of EU membership has a decisive influence on the way they are rebuilding their societies. They need to look forward. I have personally spoken with many leaders in that region. They all have the same message. The EU is their main partner and aspiration. Croatia has already advanced quite far in the membership process. But Bosnia-Herzegovina, Albania, Montenegro, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia and Serbia are all potential EU members. The, stat the status of Kosovo will, I hope, be resolved soon. The countries of this region, with its tragic recent past, deserve the prospect of being part of our Europe. If they take the right path, we must meet them with open arms. Ladies and gentlemen, within the EU, there are clear signs of enlargement fatigue. First, the Constitutional Treaty ran into difficulties, and now some say that the EU should pause before taking in any new members. The rallying cry for this school of thought is absorption capacity. In December, the Presidency will organize a debate among EU leaders about enlargement, in line with what was decided at the June European Council. This debate is warranted, but I strongly feel that it should not lead to further conditions being set for enlargement. The EU need, needs results not further reflection periods. I have great sympathy with those who say that the Constitutional Treaty should be ratified before we take new members on board. So it should. The Constitutional Treaty provides many important improvements to the way we govern an enlarged union. However, I cannot agree with those who think that the ratification of the Constitutional Treaty should be made into a condition for further enlargement. Enlargement needs to continue with or without the Constitutional Treaty. We need to maintain an enlargement policy that keeps the EU open to countries that are willing and able to meet the strict and demanding conditions of membership. If we now set further conditions, conditions which are basically internal to the EU and over which potential candidates have no influence, like ratification of the Constitutional Treaty, then we risk demoralizing deserving candidates, for whom the prospect of EU membership, however distant, is a strong incentive to reform and live up to European standards. This would break the strong bond that the EU has developed with its neighbors. The current EU enlargement policy, based on objective criteria, is a true success. The latest enlargement was a huge leap, taking in 10 new members, but its impact has been very positive. The EU has not come to a standstill as many opponents of enlargement predicted. I sincerely believe that Europe will benefit greatly from carrying on with enlargement. I hope that the December debate on enlargement will cement our common understanding of the policy and strengthen the consensus 
on enlargement. This needs to be said loud and clear. The EU must not set new criteria for enlargement. The EU has acted as a beacon for European nations and have emerged from the shadows of the Cold War, a beacon that has encouraged both reform and modernization. If the keepers of that beacon prevent it from signing out, there is no knowing what course the ships will take in the darkness. Our difficult and dark past haunts us still. Just last week, I met Carla Del Ponte, chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. She told me how far criminals are still shielded from justice. Ladies and gentlemen, let me finish my speech by making a few comments about Britain in Europe. Clearly, Britain is a leader in Europe. The British EU presidency a year ago managed to resolve many difficult issues that are crucial for Europe. For instance, opening accession negotiations with Turkey and agreeing on the next financial framework. Never an easy task. At the same time, Britain is known for having its way of thinking about many things things that most other EU members take for granted, like Britain not being part of Schengen, the EU's passport-free zone, and especially staying outside the Eurozone and keeping the power. Meanwhile, we have had the Euro in our wallets for less than five years, yet using it seems the most natural thing in the world for people from Finland to Portugal. We had a debate in Finland about joining the euro. Many felt that the Finnish economy would not perform, perform well within the eurozone, euro for example, because our economy follows a cycle that it perhaps more in tune with the United States than many other EU economies. However, skeptics like myself have been proved wrong by our initial experiences. Finland had an unstable currency and punitively high interest rates in the early 1990s, not unlike Britain at that time. And being in the euro has brought unprecedented monetary stability for Finland. It is actually one of the underlying factors in our current strong economic performance. I think the early 1990s demonstrated that having a bigger economy like Britain's is no insurance against monetary instability. Britain has a strong economy and a well-managed monetary policy outside the Eurozone. I have no lessons to give here. However, I feel that the Euro has been one of the EU's success stories in terms of globalization. Our companies have benefited from monetary stability and using the euro has removed one big practical obstacle to trade and economic activity within the eurozone. The euro is a success. It is not my place to make a judgment about British entry, but I can say that if Britain decides to join, it will be a welcome member. And I'm... <laughs> 
And I'm uh, not saying this just because all clubs are happy to welcome wealthy and popular members. <laughs> the paradox about Britain not being in the innermost core of the Union, which the Eurozone clearly constitutes, is that in the past 10 years, the European Union has moved very much in the direction that Britain has long advocated. Ambitious about enlargement, more open to the world, and serious about economic reform. Britain clearly belongs in the political core of a union that holds these convictions close to its heart. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Prime Minister, for that uh, very wide-ranging lecture and, uh, I hope, a very stimulating lecture. To repeat, the text of the lecture, sorry, the text of the lecture will be available on the website of the LSE homepage under uh, events, and the uh, lecture is to be downloadable as a podcast after this lecture as well. But we now have the opportunity for questions and answers. You can see that around the lecture theatre, both upstairs and downstairs, there are colleagues with uh, microphones. Uh, I'm going to invite you to uh, put up your hand if you wish to uh, ask a question. Could you simply tell us who you are? And remember, please, to try to keep it as a question. I've been asked, rather than a speech, and I've been asked to uh, repeat the question, uh, which is an additional reason for you to be brief and indeed uh, simple in your language. Please, your questions. Here. Can you wait for the microphone, please? My name is Oti Roosverta, and I'm from the European Institute. Mr. Prime Minister, you said that we shouldn't build walls around Europe. With that in mind, what should be done about protectionist policies, such as the CAP? Okay. Shall we take a, several of them? Any other questions now, please? The gentleman at the front. Good evening, Prime Minister. I'm a Chinese student studying the Department of Government. Uh, in Sino-EU's uh, foreign relations, they seem that uh, it's easier to make uh, agreements in the uh, in economy issue than in political issue, such as the EU embargo to China or the human rights issue. So, do you, so I know it, it depends on specific issue, but do you, in general speaking, do you think that it, it's, uh, China lacks the effection, effective negotiator or lacks the person who knows EU system well uh, is, is the cause somewhat effect that uh, the communication between the China and the EU? Thank you. Thank you. And the lady in the center, please. My name is Janaina, I come from Brazil, and I would like to know uh, the opinion of the Prime Minister about the main impact of globalization on the work relations. Have you heard it? Yeah, okay. So we have uh, three questions. The, in sum, the first question was about the protectionism of the common agricultural policy. The second question, if I can summarize, was about China 
and whether it could be an effective partner for the European Union. And the third question was about the impact of globalization on work relations. Uh, three nice, simple questions, uh, <laughs> and I'll invite you to give your answer, Prime Minister. Yes, may, I, may I start with, the, with the China? Um, always when we, uh, when, when we discuss with uh, third, third countries like China, we just had uh, some weeks ago a, a, a meeting, EU-China EU uh, meeting, um, we always have our whole agenda, and it is never only the economics. It's all also the human rights and, and other more political, political questions. And, and um, I, I think that it is one uh, strength of the European Union in the world. We want to keep in the table also questions like, like human, human rights or the working conditions. And, and, uh, and we, are, we, are making, uh, we are making pressure also to, to, these, to these questions. And uh, even uh, just after that um, EU-China meeting, we had also a bilateral uh, visit between Finland and China. And in that occasion, we, we even discussed about uh, the Tibet question. So, so, so don't worry, we are not going to have a debate only about or cooperation on, on the, only about economic, uh, economical issues. But China will be, I'm sure, it will be one of the main partners uh, for European Union. I believe that nowadays already European Union is the most important trading partner to China. And also the, 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 China is going to be stronger and stronger partner to, to us. And, um, and I'm not uh, afraid that China will take our jobs. It will take a lot, but uh, when we can increase our trade with China, also we can create jobs to, jobs to, to, to Europe. I can uh, make example from, from Finnish side. Our trade with China has increased during last years. Every year about 30%, some years more than 50%, and it is almost in balance. Nowadays it's um, quite profitable to China, but we are also managing quite well. So, so even we have lost jobs to China because of the increasing trade, we are also get quite a good benefit on, on, on that. Um, the work relations, what... Um, um, in, in globalization, um, when uh, the modern global, globalization started, it seems that it means it, it's, it means mostly that uh, the, the developing countries like China, India, and so on, they will they will take the uh, uh, the jobs where the where it's very low costs and are, are very practical and simple production. And the starting point, point was like that. But nowadays, like I said in, in my speech, um, it's not anymore like that. Uh, in China and in India, they are educating hundreds and hundreds of thousands of engineers. engineers and and uh, it will be only a question of short time when also those countries, they will, uh, they will 
uh, innovate uh, new modern products and ser services and the competition with, with Europe will be very tough and hard. And uh, in these conditions, of course, we in, in European Union, we had to we had to think what is our strategy and, and I believe that the strategy should be that we had to concentrate to those areas where we are strong. We had to be best in some areas and, and, and make jobs in those, those areas. But in the same time when, when the living standard, for example, in China is increasing and when the foreign investors are, in, are going to invest to China, it means also that uh, the working conditions, they will be better and better. I have visited in several, several uh, foreign um, fac factories in China and, and the working conditions have, have been better and better because they had to, uh, they had to uh, put their modern technology and, and effective ways to work and, and um, I believe that also to the global companies from Europe it's very important that, uh, that uh, they, they are using about the same level of, uh, of, of, uh, of working methods and uh, uh, work, uh, what, what is the, what is the, protection of labor. Uh, there are so many Finnish. <laughs> yes. uh, protection of la labor. So it's going to be better and better by step. By step, and then the protection. What I said just, um, uh, of course, I said it was it in the same day or day after when the council made a decision to to put uh, was it about 20 percent, um, uh, 20 more to the shoes from China, and I didn't like that. Uh, Finland was against it. But, uh, but the majority in union were accepting it. And, and of course we can say that it, is, it was also protectionism. It was it. It, was it. it is truly so. It is truly so. And in, and in agriculture, in agriculture there, there of course the play is very hard. And I believe that every county, every country will try to keep its own food production. And, uh, and I think that it is actually quite fair that we can produce food in, in every country. And, uh, and I s accept there may be a little more um, um, limi limita limitations so that we can, s so that we can save, save that. But this question of agriculture, it is the most difficult in the Doha round and EU, EU has its own negotiating mandate and um, we, are, we, are no, we are not having any plans to change that mandate. Thank you. Time for some more questions. Um, we'll take the gentleman slightly further back in the centre here. The, the one, yes, you, sir. Thank you, Prime Minister. Uh, my question is, You've uh, couched your whole talk in terms of the European Union and developing countries in the challenge for globalization. You haven't mentioned, I don't think, either Japan or the United States. Are these um, competitors or are they uh, collaborators in the challenge as you see it? Thank you. 
Uh, the lady here in the grey. Uh, hi. Um, I had a question regarding uh, globalization and your opinion of the European Union. Um, globalization, you said, is one of the most effective aid projects in the world. Uh, it also provides wealth generation for lesser developed countries and developed countries. What responsibilities do you think uh, the European Union has as a trade partner, but also as a set of uh, more developed countries uh, in this era of globalization? Thank you. And um, yeah, the chap uh, just next to you now, please, on that row. Uh, good evening. My name is Dimitri. Um, Mr. Prime Minister, what is your view on the further economic integration of the new 10 EU members and Romania and Bulgaria. Do you think they need to undertake any further economic or social reforms or they are already living up to EU standards? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we've got uh, three further questions. Um, the first about Japan and the United States. Essentially, can they be, are they rivals or partners for the European Union? Secondly, the responsibilities of the European Union in relation to the third world, developing world, the European Union as a, a trade partner. And finally, uh, for Bulgaria and Romania, do they need to undertake further reform uh, prior to entry? Uh, have Bulgaria and Romania justified their accession? Bulgaria and Romania, they, they had to uh, continue the reform policy and uh, implement implementation uh, and, uh, and um, the, the commission is evaluating uh, how they will su succeed and there might be some sanctions if, if not. Uh, with the develop, developing aid, EU is the, as you know well, EU is the world's biggest uh, uh, development aid given in the, in the world and, and um, of course, we have a special responsibility about develop, developing countries. Countries, and um, if you think globalization and this development aid, um, I, I think that we should learn something. What has happened in, especially in Asia? I remember it's not so many years ago when when uh, we said that Vietnam is one of the most poorest country in the world. Now its its economy is in rapid uh, it is rapidly increasing and, and why? I believe that the reason is that we have had a long uh, period of um, development aid to Vietnam uh, by which they have uh, built the infrastructure and, and so on but in the same time they have managed to use the globalization uh, very, very well. They get uh, direct foreign investments to the country, and so they have succeeded quite well. Do we have? Does we, does we have in Africa same kind of examples? Not so many. Not so many. And and we should learn something about it. How to combine the development aid and globalization, the economical globalization, so that the development development aid could build the base for the, uh, for the economic and then the country could be able to 
take the benefits from globalization. So this is very important area to think. Japan and USA, they should be our partners, but of course, in several areas, we are also competitors between each other. But there are some special areas like climate change, where we should be very strong partners, and we have a special responsibility to develop such technologies which can be used also in the develop, developing countries. And, um, and with Japan, for example, the, the problem of aging population is uh, what we are sharing with them. And, and uh, there should be also cooperation in this field, how we will manage, manage with it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, gentleman nearest you here, please. My name is Ivan Kitka. I'm from the BBC. Mr. Prime Minister, you have spoken quite nicely about new opportunities brought by EU enlargement. So is Finland ready to open its labor market to new countries, to Romania and Bulgaria? And what would be your, your message on this topic to other EU leaders, please? Thank you. Uh, friend here, please. Prime Minister. Mr. Prime Minister, my name is Eddie. I'm a third year international relations student here at the LSE, originally from Sweden and Hungary. Uh, you mentioned uh, that to keep our wealth and development in the EU, we should uh, try uh, stepping higher and higher on the value-added chain of world economy, innovation being an, an extremely important factor in that. However, given the recent very uh, fast development in Southeastern Asia, economically and so on and so forth, and also politically, uh, hopefully soon. Um, uh, what do you see any any further steps that the EU will be able to take? Um, I don't want to preempt, obviously, the big step we want to take within innovation. But but what what do you think could be the future there when Southeast Asia and other parts of the world might catch up with us in that field? Thank you. And the lady at the back, please. from. Um, Prime Minister, do you not think that, as you say, that the constitution, constitutional treaty and the ratification of that is almost as important as the enlargement, although it should not be done to, to hamper the other, but is it not possible that if we continue with the enlargement without ratifying the constitution first, that will become increasingly difficult? Okay. Yes. About, about enlargement and constitutional treaty, um, I only, I'm only saying that we have now a re reflection period, period with constitutional treaty. We don't need any other re reflection period. And everyone realizes that if we, if we close negotiations uh, with, uh, with Croatia and Turkey, it would have a very serious consequences. Um, then about, about the develop, rapid development in Southeast Asia and Europe. Mm. The world and the globalization, it is not zero-sum game anymore. I don't think that it has any, any, any time being, but it is not a zero-sum uh, game. It is more win-win situation. Uh, and and we, we should be very happy that Southeast Asia has such a rapid um, de development. 
just now because also we get benefits of it. Our living standard and quality of life can increase uh, when, when the world economy is, is increasing. Especially if the, if the growth of the world economy is based more and more with modern technology, which is using less uh, natural resources and is more uh, environmental friendly. And it seems that there is such, such chances that, that we, we will get more and more economical growth with a very environmental uh, safety, safety base. Uh, about the labor markets, yes, we will open labor markets also to Romania and Bulgaria in Finland. Thank you. Um, the guy here nearest you. Hello, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, my name is Esteban. I'm from Colombia, and I'm studying in the Department of Government. Um, again, in the issue of en enlargement, you talked about the benefits of it, and you've talked about um, the need of a closer relationship with, with Russia. Would you then support uh, an application of the Russian Federation to become a member of the European Union if they were ever to make one? I think Chelsea supporters think they already have. <laughs> um, okay. The gentleman right at the very front here, please. Yeah. Uh, Prime Minister, you, <coughs> you mentioned about the shame of uh, Srebrenica. Do, do you think the EU countries should spend more money on their defence? So more money on, on, on their armed forces? Armed forces. So that they could do something more than they did in the last situation. Okay. And uh, can we take the lady here, please? Can you wait for the microphone, please? Mr. Prime Minister, um, Professor Featherstone said before that the European Union is not only a geographical union, but also a union of values. Um, what, uh, what I found in your speech is that you were very thorough and clear-cut and profound in all uh, economical aspects, but you didn't say anything about values which can be incorporated in the other dimension, which is the cultural dimension, i.e., we should talk about education and mass media and the arts and research and the sciences. Um, don't you give any consideration to, to this beautiful dimension that we have left behind tonight? Oh. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Can I just uh, repeat them? The first question was about uh, the prospects of Russia joining the European Union. Uh, the second question was whether the European Union should spend more money on arms to give itself the capability of dealing with incidents like Srebrenica. And the third question was basically what does Europe stand for? Doesn't it also have important uh, dimensions of culture, of education, and mass media? And these should be taken into account in our sense of the future direction. Yes. I, I thought that when Professor had the opening speech, I thought that he was copying my elderly yes, but about uh, values. Yes, <laughs> about yes. Values. I think I said it without footnotes, actually. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes because, because of, of, co of course, to us and to me, to me, the Europe is uni the union of values. And uh, it's also with enlargement that, um, that the principle is that, that uh, we are open to those European countries 
which share our values and which, which, which can fulfill the uh, union's criteria. So, of, of course, the values are, are, are most important. That's why we are living. <laughs> That's why we are, we are living. But, uh, but um, unfortunately, to the title uh, union and the challenge of globalization, uh, and I had some time limits, I didn't open this question more. About armed forces, one result after what happens in Western Balkans only ten years ago was that, that in Union we started to discuss what should be done so that also European countries and European Union could react more rapidly. And the result has been that in the beginning of next year we will have our first rapid reaction forces. And, uh, and I know it well because Finnish, Finland will take part to the first, first troops with Germany and, and Netherlands. And it is, it is one answer. We had to have a better ability to react if something uh, serious happens some, somewhere. And, and, um, and why we need these rapid reaction forces um, before the, the we, had, we have had crisis management capabilities, but the, warn, uh, the warning time has been about 60, 70 days. Now with these new troops, we are trying to get the possibility to react with 5 to 15 days. If the Council can make with a unanimity a, 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 a decision. So, Maybe not more investments to, to arms, but uh, better functioning troops and better cooperation in, inside Union. And, and now, now we are we are ready. Now we are ready for for that first step. And with with Russia, I see that Russia, EU and Russia, should be a strategic strategic part, partners uh, to each others in many fields, not only in energy policy, but also in other, other areas. And our aim is that in the November, no, November summit, EU-Russia summit, we could make, make a decision to start uh, negotiations about a post-PCA agreement. It is one kind of basic agreement between Russia and EU, uh, EU and uh, maybe it is good to take this step first to get this to this agreement. Thank you. I think we have time for two more questions. So um, could we take the gentleman on the back row, please? Oh, yes. Kasper Vio, formerly of the European Institute. Um, Prime Minister, I was wondering what the relation is uh, between uh, energy policy that the, that the Finnish presidency promotes and um, that... Uh, the agenda of the, the uh, coming German uh, presidency. Thank you. Um, there are many of you wanting to ask questions, and we've got time, I think, just for one more question. I wonder if you could keep up your hand if you are from Finland, please. Uh, the lady here, please. Kiitos. Kiitos, kiitos, herra pääministeri. 
Um, my question um, is about the future of the welfare state. Um, globalization um, is considered a major challenge to many of the welfare states that compose the European Union. Um, what are the kind of challenges brought about by globalization that the contemporary welfare states could not handle? What I can, it's a very difficult question, but what I can say is that if it isolate us, it would be end of welfare state. Uh, we are, there is a strong interdependence between countries and companies around the world. And, uh, and, um, and uh, if we isolate us as a single country or only as an a, a EU, I would be sure that we would fall down and we could not keep our welfare state. So I'm strongly believing to the open markets and, and to the cooperation around the world and it will benefit also us if if we if we, if we Europeans concentrate enough to education. I believe that it is the key issue to to, to Europe. Um, in energy policy, uh, during Finnish presidency, we will concentrate concentrate to the external dimension of energy policy. So it means that how European Union can, can speak with one voice with its neighboring areas, especially with energy producers. And there is a lot of to do. And after us, during the German presidency, we will, we will get to the spring European Council first annual report made by European Commission about our energy strategy. And then we will have an uh, overall uh, debate about energy policy. We had that kind of uh, start last spring council without any report. And uh, the next March uh, debate, it will be the first actually in European Council level, which is, which is um, uh, dealing with, uh, with the energy strategy as a whole. But as a, as a preparatory work to that, uh, it's good that during Finnish presidency we, we concentrate to external dimension of energy, energy policy. Uh, uh, to get a good results, uh, it's most important that we could have a well-functioning internal markets in energy inside European Union. And the next step had to be that that uh, as many of countries in our neighboring area could, could take to use the same principles of our internal energy, energy markets, it, it would help a lot. But then, as I said, we also need the uh, same rules and principles with, uh, with uh, European Union, Norway, Russia, Algeria, uh, Gulf area, uh, and also with those um, transit countries uh, we are with, uh, we are getting uh, natural gas. Gas. So, so this external dimension, it's it's very important to us if we think about energy security, and it is the area where Finnish presidency will will con concentrate in energy policy, and uh, and then German presidency can continue after us. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, to remind you, the.
This lecture is the first in the series, and you can get the information on the upcoming uh, lectures in this series from the LSE website. Uh, for tickets, they're uh, obtainable through the conference's office. But before we uh, close, let me, on your behalf, uh, and indeed on behalf of the European Institute and our partners with the Financial Times, thank the Prime Minister for his uh, contribution and his willingness to answer so many questions. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. But I, I have two questions to you. And I, I, this is a poll. Um, who of you are supporting the enlargement of EU and the next voting is who are against the continuing of enlargement? First, those who are for the enlargement. It's okay. And who are against? Someone, yes. Oh, but well, it was well. about 10 to 1. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Very thank much. you. Sorry. Sorry. Can I? I've forgotten. The security staff tell me. Can you please remain in your seats until the Prime Minister has left the, uh, the theatre? Can you please okay. just remain in the theatre now? <laughs>